you shouldn't want to be a leader. You should be compelled to it. And I think some of us just have certain talents and skill sets that land us in positions of leadership. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Payton with the EOS Leader Podcast. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Billy Friley, founder of Village Ice Cream in Calgary and the author of an amazing entrepreneurial story. In college, Billy first studied aerospace engineering, then physics, then chemistry, and then Latin American culture, which makes him appreciably smarter than me for the record. In fact, it may have been a South American motorcycle trip cut short by stress and fatigue that led to his passion for creating the freshest, creamiest ice cream Calgarians had ever tasted and serving it in decidedly untraditional shops that bring people together. Nine years and four locations later, Village remains in hot pursuit of cold perfection. Billy, great story. Welcome to the show and thank you for being willing to share your story with us. It's an honor. Thanks for having me, Peyton. Yeah, my great pleasure. Why don't you go into a little more detail? Take me back to the earliest days of your entrepreneurial journey and just walk us through the events and the way you were thinking about them and feeling about them as they played out. Man, that's, I mean, it kind of goes back to college for me. As you mentioned in the introduction, I was a soul searcher from a very early age and I was quick to move on if something didn't feel right. When I was in high school, I wanted to become an astronaut, but that was mostly to listen to my favorite albums in space. <laughs> Which once I got into into university and into my undergrad, you know, I realized it was going to take a lot more work than that. A lot of teamwork. One thing I was discovering when I was young was I was a bit of a lone wolf. I struggled to kind of integrate into a team effort and partly maybe because I didn't play team sports as a kid or maybe just my personality and my background and how I was raised. But that became very difficult trait to negotiate while I was in pursuit of this aerospace engineering degree, because it's all about teamwork and becoming an astronaut is all about figuring out how to work in the context of a team. From then, I kind of moved on to physics and chemistry. I, sw- I, I had been at University of Colorado. I moved to McGill in, in Montreal and then finally landed with a Latin American studies degree, which was pretty much just my easiest way out of university <laughs> at that point. I had fallen out of love with, with the sciences and I didn't know what I was doing. One thing I did discover, and this has been a major influence on my life, is in my university years when I moved to Montreal, I do think it was destiny of some sort. I grew up in a very monolingual family in a very monolingual city of Calgary, um, a prairie city, not unlike, you know, the Denver of the North, I guess. And uh, when I moved to multicultural Montreal, I had discovered foreign languages. And I actually ended up learning Portuguese, French, and Spanish while I was in university. And foreign language acquisition has been a big part of my life since then. And I speak Russian with my kids, and my wife's native tongue is Russian. And and, uh, that was the first time where I discovered that I could find passion, you know, real true passion with no other goal than to just experience what it's like to be totally and wholly dedicated to something that had nothing to do with advancing my career, you know, kind of getting checking off the boxes of my life. Right. So that had a major influence on me. But, you know, when I graduated university, I, I got scared and moved back home to my parents' house and tried to get a regular job, which I did. And 
ended up landing a job with, with an entrepreneur here. I had no interest in business. I had never grown up thinking, I, I grew up thinking maybe I'd be an engineer or a doctor or something like that, you know, typical kind of professional. I never thought about business in any sort of context. And when I fell into this job, which I ended up working for this guy for three years, it was just so inspiring. And he was so inspiring that I discovered a passion for small business, not unlike the passion that I had experienced around learning foreign languages. I liked it beyond the idea of just making a living or something. I really fundamentally loved what it was like to work around just normal people wearing normal clothes, talking about normal things and working hard to make something, you know, great. I just loved the simplicity of it and the lack of pretense. And, you know, I look back on this and it's clear I'm speaking in retrospectively here, right? Of course, of course. (laughs) But I mean, that's what was going on. In terms of how I got to the, you know, this mo- this adventure down to South America, this motorcycle trip, after three years of working for this gentleman, I kind of fell out of love with what I was doing for him. And I figured I'd get, have this kind of big quarter life journey. I spoke Spanish and Portuguese and I'd head down to Brazil solo on my motorcycle. And uh, I don't know if you've seen, uh, if you've seen the movie, uh, The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio, where he kind of goes crazy at the yes. end, but that was kind of the extent of my trip. I really, really spiraled into kind of a a dark, isolated experience made worse by, you know, rumbling down the highways with a helmet alone with my thoughts day after day after day. And one thing I realized is that, you know, traveling was not going to fix my kind of existential yearning to find meaning in my life. Mm -hmm. For me, it wasn't. For others, it could. I needed to build something and create. And I had always been very insecure about my ability to truly be a productive person in society and to do do something that was uniquely my own and gave me value and gave society value. And I realized on that trip, like what I wanted was to wake up every single morning and be really excited about what I was doing with my life. And so long as I was traveling down the road, looking for my next beer, my next flirt, my next day at the beach, I needed to U-turn and head back north. I didn't need anything fancy. What I needed is to wake up in the morning and feel excited about my life, excited about what I was mm. doing. And that's what I did. I made a U-turn after four months and I missed 13 countries that I had intended to travel through and headed north as quick as I could and started the next step of this journey. And as I understand it, there was a Grandma Gladys involved in this next part of the story. Do I have that right? Yeah, I have a bunch of family from the U.S. And my grandma, my mom's mom, lived in uh, Helena, Montana, the capital of Montana. And shortly after I came home, I took a trip down to Montana and I was actually kind of thinking of a totally different business that I might start at the time. And I had realized after a few months of research and I happened to be down there that that wasn't feasible for me for whatever reason. And I was sulking over a bowl of huckleberry ice cream, locally made huckleberry ice cream. It was just before dinner time, and I grabbed that pint, which I would normally never do that, you know, just before dinner because I'm an adult and, you know, I have a, some sort of structure around how I eat. And uh, I took one bite and I ate like half the pint or something. Um, and I just thought it was just the most incredible ice cream I'd ever tried. And I, my family informed me that it was made just down the road. And I just couldn't believe that in a city of Calgary, you know, 20 times the size of Helena, we're a city of about 1.3 million people that we didn't have high quality ice cream. And I woke up the next morning and I never looked back. That was the end of it right there. What year was this? That was in 2011 in February, an unusually warm February in Montana in 2011. Yeah, that's crazy. What a great story. I always wondered as a kid, like, do adults have some kind of like, does something happen in adulthood that you can't possibly know or understand as a child, you know? 
And in a way, this was kind of that moment where I kind of saw my destiny kind of play out before my eyes. Like I never questioned anything again after I found this business and never looked back. This is, this is what I was meant to do. Yeah. One day, all you have are questions. And the next day, all you have is a journey you're on and you're just going to you're just going to be there. I love that. Love that. Love it's that. a great so, feeling. So when you got home, what was the first thing you did? Tell us how you went from idea to business in those yeah. early days. And the idea is important to understand that like even 10 years ago, you know, we live in a world that evolves so quickly now, even 10 years ago in a city like Calgary, a Midwestern city, we did not have a great food scene, you know, like craft beer you know craft beer it's like it'd be weird to go buy a six pack of heineken now you know but even 10 years ago that wasn't that weird of a thing to do right i mean we're just inundated with craft everything the idea was that everything that was considered quality in the food realm there was always some reference to the old world to europe you know like so you think about gelato or you think about high-end beer anything and we we've seen this for the last 20 years a real movement in north america to celebrate north american cuisine and so I really used craft beer as my model in that, okay, here's a product that is uniquely North American, that is being celebrated as North American and, and can celebrate our tastes and our palate and could be made locally. So the idea was that we weren't going to talk about gelato or anything like that anymore. We were going to use North American flavors, but the best versions of them you ever tasted. And we were going to do it in a really hip environment with awesome music and tons of energy. And we wanted to be the best beer-free party in town. That was my goal. You know, you didn't want to go out for a beer at the pub, but you wanted to have the experience of feeling connected to your community, to the world at large, to have fun, to just feel that energy that you get in, usually in an alcohol-based environment. And that's what I created with Village Ice Cream. So that was the idea. And I followed a very conventional path. I rented an office, or I think he gave it to me for free, my dad's downtown office in downtown Calgary. And I went there every day for eight hours for the better part of two months. And I wrote a business plan. Part of that was learning how to get money from the bank without having any collateral, using federal subsidies, federal loans, doing everything I could to figure out how to kind of turn this vision into a reality. And I really did it just like you'd imagine. Business plan, meeting with the banks, having those conversations, and uh, figuring out how to incorporate a business and just one foot in front of the other, as they say. And other than your dad lending you his office, who were you leaning on for advice, help, counsel, or were you just heads down studying this thing yourself and, and working independently? For the first while, I was working independently, but I had the real bona fide angel come into my life about eight months through the process. So I knew what my recipe needed to be more or less, but it needed to be commercialized because in the world of dairy, you have to homogenize which means like sending it through a tiny little nozzle at super high pressures in order to beat down the molecules. And that's what keeps your milk from separating uh, and your fat separating from your liquids and, you know, in a milk that you get from a store, it's homogenized so that it stays consistent throughout. It needs to be homogenized and pasteurized and pasteurization methods can have an effect on kind of the caramelization of the sugars and how that comes out on the palate. There's all these things. And as I was kind of taking it from this kind of, you know, home recipe to this commercially viable product, I had just opened a Twitter account. I still can't operate social media. It is <laughs> not for me. But I did open a social media account, a Twitter account. And this local, I guess, which, you know, an influencer, I hadn't hardly even knew what that was in 2010. His influencer, she wrote, she was the first tweet. And she was this local girl who was well known in the city. And she said, this is amazing. Gourmet ice cream, Calgary, my favorite ice cream in the world. 
is in Seattle at a place called Molly Moons. Molly Moons, pretty famous woman in Seattle who's built a 250 person ice cream business. And she's very politically active and amazing woman. And I read her bio just for fun. I was like, I should go check this out online. I read her bio and she was inspired by the same Montana based ice cream business. No, she was 10 years prior. Yeah. Yeah. The very first line in her bio was, you know, Molly Moon's ice cream career started in uni- at the University of Montana while she worked at the Big Dipper. Wow. And the Big Dipper is where I tasted the Huckleberry ice cream, or at least where it came from, where I was tasting at my grandma's house. And I thought, that's, that's insane. Crazy. Like, you know, I, so I called her and I said, hey, I also have been inspired by the Huckleberry ice cream and the Big Dipper. And I was just wondering, there's a university out in uh, University of Penn State that has a 108-year-old ice cream uni- ice cream course that you can take that teaches you all about the science of ice cream. Do you think I should take it? And she said, heck no. Sorry to Penn State, University of Pennsylvania. She said, heck no. Just come hang out with me for a few days. I'll show you the ropes. That's awesome. And I got in a flight with my mom, and we head down there, just kind of make a mother-son trip, you know, and enjoy uh, each other's company for a few days. And I would spend my days with her or with her number two IC. And I'm very indebted to this woman who really kind of in two or three days taught me what would have taken me a year to learn all by myself. Wow. And one of the main things that she told me, she said, with your expensive ice cream that you're going to make, you are going to go bankrupt before the year's out if you try to sell wholesale to restaurants. So you go to retail. And I had intended originally to just go wholesale and test out the market. And with her and, and rate, you know, scraping together another 25 grand, I finished and kind of opened up a little storefront in front of my production facility and uh, never looked back. And we've been in retail only ever since. That's crazy. So that first location I know is one of the untraditional locations. Tell us more about that, how that materialized and describe that location and and how has it manifested itself as as you've grown? Absolutely. One thing entrepreneurs don't spend enough time talking is how much luck's involved in their success. (laughs) And so I'm going to tell you again that this felt like it was just meant to be. I decided two months into building this business plan that I needed to start looking for a production facility. And I knew nothing about commercial real estate or anything, but I told myself every single morning from nine to noon, you're going to drive up and down the streets of Calgary looking for, for lease signs. And on the first morning I did that and I was driving up and down 10th Ave. I just had a good feeling about 10th Ave and 10th Ave dead ends at 4th Street and a big cul-de-sac. No one ever goes down there. It's right on the edge of downtown. So it's like centrally located, but kind of spooky. And I was getting car sick and I pulled into a little parking lot beside a pink single story stucco building to kind of pull into their stall and rest my eyes. And when I opened my eyes and looked through the rear view mirror, I looked at this building I kind of looked at the corner, which looked vacant. And I said, this is where my ice cream shop's going to be. I can feel it. And I walked in and I talked to the secretary and I said, I'm looking for about 1500 square feet. Looks kind of like your back end is not being used. Can I speak with the landlord? And she gave me the number. And as it turns out, there's 1,495 square feet of space available. (laughs) And two months later, I had a four page lease agreement, which if you know anything about commercial leases, is the world's shortest commercial lease agreement. Yeah. And um, this turned out to be an amazing experience, uh, an amazing location. And people to this day don't understand it, especially people in the real estate business. It is beside an engineering company. There is no other retail around. It's a dead end part of the downtown for yet 
within about a year and a half, we had lineups of 100 to 200 people walking out the door. Yeah, it's a speakeasy. And, you have an ice cream based yes. speakeasy. Yeah. Yeah. And you were seeing this happen all over North America. Yeah. I mean, this was the ultimate kind of symbol of pushing away from big box suburban mega development shopping, yeah. which is not only do we want to see something in the urban core, we want to think of it the way you might be walking down an alley in the early 1900s in Paris, you know, the tiny little corner nooks and crannies of a city that are producing gold. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's what it came to be. And if you actually look at it, a cul-de-sac, which is where four of my locations sit now, a cul-de-sac is incredible because it forces the traffic to slow down. Yeah. We had incredible views of downtown. We had a sense of being gritty and urban. And there was the juxtaposition of that with the quaintness and innocence of ice cream. There was unlimited parking. We're a very car focused city and it all just came together. And I had built this thing that within kind of two or three years, almost is a little bit iconic within the city, which is such a short period of time yeah. in which to create legacy. Yeah. But that's what we did. And it funded the growth for my other mm. businesses. It was incredible. Fascinating. Fascinating. Great story. Thank you, Billy. So now four locations, 100 employees. Do I have that right? Roughly? Yeah, we're building our fifth location in uh, October. That was my dream. That was my 10-year vision. And if all goes well, we will accomplish that dream about five months ahead of schedule. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And all locations in Calgary? All in Calgary and just kind of these really cool neighborhoods that are kind of define the energy of the city. And they just kind of all protect downtown like a moat. You know, I've, yeah. got, I've got angles everywhere and I'm really proud and excited of what Village has done to transform these neighborhoods as well. Yeah. So, you know, this sets the table so beautifully for the conversation we're going to have about leadership because you've described yourself as somebody who never saw yourself as a, as a team member, much less a leader. And, and you have been soul searching your whole life and, and, you know, a light bulb went on and all of a sudden one day you wake up and you've got four locations and a fifth one on the way and a hundred people working for you. And you've become an iconic Calgary brand and, and you're a leader. And so that's what I want to talk about for the rest of our time together. What have you learned along the way? What do you think you still have to learn? What do you wish you knew 10 years ago before you started this journey that would have made the, the journey easier, if that makes sense? So, right. so let's start from scratch. What do you think naturally you found are some of your best leadership management capabilities. They're just natural. They come naturally to you. You don't have to work at them. Can you think of any attributes you've got that your people really respond well to? Well, I'm going to say, first of all, that I am not a natural born leader, that this has been an uphill battle from day one for me and not something that's come naturally to me. I can't remember who it was and I, I should find out this quote, but it's like something from Roman times, like Marcus Aurelius or somebody said, it's like, you shouldn't want to be a leader. You should be compelled to it. And I think some of us just have certain talents and skill sets that land us in positions of leadership. Often people looking to be leaders are looking for power and that in and of itself is just corrupting. But like, I think that what he's also saying is that if you find yourself in this position of leadership, that it is actually an incredible blessing. And it's also an incredible burden of responsibility. Having said that, some days I'm better than others at embracing that <laughs> responsibility. But the way I got here was because I'm very driven, I'm very passionate, I'm very focused, and that people want to follow that. 
you know, we need those people in society because they're the people that are kind of paving the path forward, but it puts them in positions of, of control and leadership. And that's a whole nother skill set that I'm still trying to learn. Got it. But I think, you know, talking to my staff and getting a little bit of feedback, I mean, I think what they experience is, yeah, somebody who at the end of the day knows where, where he wants to go. And that might be half the battle right there of being a great leader. Or more. Or more. Yeah. My sense in the brief time we've known each other is that you're also not even remotely interested in showing up as anybody other than the person you actually are. There's no guile or intent to deceive. You're just Billy and you're always going to be Billy. And I, I find that that is something people who are looking for leadership appreciate. Absolutely. And that certain versions of Billy aren't that. <laughs> <laughs> we stop enjoyable to be around yeah. but it's yeah it's 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 real and i think that that's part of the dna of our company you know i remember when we first started hiring people and of course i was the high up until 50 people i was the guy doing all the hire and i remember i would because you know this concept of hipsterism was really really in vogue that 2005 to 2015 let's say and i'd lecture i remember most of my people that worked for me said you know, you didn't even ask us any questions in the interview. <laughs> I just lectured them on hipsterism stops at the front door. This isn't going to be a place where we're too cool for school and there's a bunch of attitude. And, and I just would kind of monitor their response to it. And I think that, yeah, there's like an earnestness that I've always tried to breathe into the company. And I just liked it. Like, I just, I wanted to be cool. We blast rap music, like, dude, at like Mach 10, like, or a hundred decibels would be a better now, you know, all night. And like, we are cool. Like it is very, these ice cream shops are about the hippest ice cream shops I've ever seen. And, but you know, like, but there's like an authenticity to the staff. And at the end of the day, they, they might be bopping their heads to some pretty gangster rap, but they're, they're sweet as honey. Right. That's always been the idea since day one. That's cool. That's cool. You've made it clear that you have a lot of work to do here. So give me two or three things you think you need to do to become a better leader than the person you are today? I have to become more concerned with developing other people's talents. I think in some ways I've always, since day one, been in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you're thinking about number one. I think that business is stressful in of itself. And I think I'm prone to having an anxious mind. And I think one of the things that causes me to be successful is also really causes me a lot of struggle, which is that I'm constantly assessing the landscape for landmines. I'm constantly trying to figure out no matter what, how remote the possibility of that thing happening in the future is that I'm prepared for it. And that kind of creates a bit of a scarcity mentality and a mentality of fear, which kind of puts me on my heels. And so what I'm finding is that when I'm in that space, that headspace is hard for me to have much energy to focus on the needs of my key employees. And the more I can spend focusing on developing them, on giving them the comfort and the security that they're looking for from their leader, the stronger we are as a company. Yeah. But it's hard to see that when you're constantly evaluating yeah. the, the forest for something bad. What are you doing to recognize those moments faster and, and work yourself out of that? you know, sort of rut of scarcity, mm -hmm. worry, anxiousness. Mm -hmm. How do you cope with that when you notice it's happening? Therapy. Yeah. Meditation, you know, because it's ultimately, it's a battle with the mind. Yeah. 
I believe I'm paraphrasing. I heard Brene Brown interviewed on a Wall Street Journal podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I think she said that she's had the privilege of working with thousands of great leaders in her life, and she's never met one of them not in therapy, which is a yeah. pretty powerful statement. But you know, I, I think it's helpful for everybody listening to remember that we're all human beings and we are all flawed and there's all, all of us have improvement to do and it's really tough to do it on yourself without somebody else's perspective involved. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the qualities that sense those of us who are at the top to the top are accompanied by a lot of suffering in the mind. Yeah. And I don't know if you can have one without the other. Yeah. Yeah. And so usually it's a type, usually there's tendencies towards OCD type thinking and, and, you know, that passion and that drive and that energy comes like there's, it, it yeah. comes with some other stuff. And so, I mean, that is part of the battle. And I think it's that personal battle that if we can overcome it, teaches us to be better leaders, right? Because as we find empathy for ourselves, a lot of us wear pretty thick armor as we find empathy for ourselves as we learn to forgive ourselves, as we learn to know ourselves more deeply, then we can start to truly become phenomenal leaders of others because, yeah. you know, we use those skill sets to tap into, you know, to tap into the leadership and management of, of the people who need it. That's right. That's right. And you have to quiet the voice in your own mind in order to hear the voices around you as your organization grows. Mm -hmm. It's the bigger you get, the more people there are to listen to and pay attention to and value and express appreciation for. And, and the busier we are here, the less time we have and the less capability we have for all that other stuff that's really important. Really good stuff. Really. Not to mention, you really like the business is not always in crisis mode and so you know at the beginning it often is but if you don't allow that like you said there's a lot you need to start spending a lot more time with your people as the organization grows and as more people need that pat on that shoulder and you need to spend more time understanding what each person needs means you got to spend less time focusing on what you need that's right if you don't let that happen also one thing i'm also noticing is like i don't want my relationship with my business to be the same forever i'm kind of getting bored of being like the big guy at the helm, yeah. you know, using brute force to push us yeah. through stormy waters. Like we're not there anymore. And so the real joy, I think, and I'm not there yet, but the real joy, I think will be spending less time focusing on myself and spending more time focusing on developing my people. Well, and I think we've been talking about this from the standpoint of self-awareness and self-evaluation. And what I would say a lot is it's really difficult and patently unfair the journey we ask entrepreneurs to go through, right? You succeed because you're determined and a rugged individualist and fearless and, and you're, you're going to prove everybody wrong and you by need have to learn how to be great at everything your business needs with no training. You know, I mean, you finding a commercial lease space and, you know, it's just, there's so many funny stories about people learning how to be great at something they have no business being great at from scratch. And then almost immediately when you're initially successful, you start transitioning into this place where you have to quit doing all those things and trust other people to do them well. And you've poured your whole life into being great at a bunch of stuff you have no business doing well. It's just unfair. 
And so yeah. if you can get through that transition without some psychosis, you're a stronger human. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, yeah, it's a it, good point. It is the great challenge. And there's so many great leaders in the world that have made that transition successfully. But for every one of them, there's a million who have failed. And I think that's what we all forget. You know, we not not all of us are the Jeff Bezoses and the Elon Musk's and the pick your name. There's a lot of failure in this journey, too. And it is normal to worry that you're going to end up one of those people for sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. The people around you, as you've started to grow to the size you are now, I'm guessing you've started to rely more heavily on other leaders and managers. What are the attributes you're looking for in people you trust to lead and manage in your organization? Oh, man, one of the coolest things that's ever come to fruition is this, like you told the business book after business book and seminar after seminar, it's like truly great leaders surround themselves around people who are smarter than they are. Oh man, dude, when that first time you feel that and you're like, Oh, this is leverage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is what it feels like. It's like you put rocket boosters behind you. And I have that in a particular person who's the head of my operations. He's been with me for seven years and he's grown up with the company. And he's just one of those guys that's been able to fire himself into new roles as we've had to grow. And he's had to evolve the way I've had to evolve in the company. But he has very different skill sets than I do. And he is a true manager of people where he may not have quite the vision that, you know, a typical leadership role requires. He has these skill sets that just blow my mind. And his name's Mew. And some of the things that he does is he knows exactly when to speak and when to stay quiet. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ever going to learn that, <laughs> you know, like it is amazing. You know, he just knows when it's time to take control of the situation and to use a, a firmer voice to guide his staff. And when he know he knows when to let go and let them take the reins. And that's one of the neatest things I've, I've been able to watch. He is a natural manager, but he takes it very serious. And he's a studier of management philosophy. So he really treats management like a science. And that's where you see, I think of an athlete, a pro athlete, which takes natural skill set and combines it with a heck of a lot of studying and hard work. So, you know, this idea that people are natural managers, I mean, this is definitely it. But what I'm seeing is a guy who's kind of 40% of the way there naturally and has put in a ton of work to get 100% of the way there. One thing he does, he's amazing. So he, he teaches our staff, including me, how to have crucial conversations. Mm. And so when you when he's presented with an idea, like and a lot of people come across those concepts around crucial accountability, crucial conversations, there are wonderful books written about that. He's the kind of guy that then takes it and implements it permanently and repetitively into the structure of the company. And he's building skill sets in our staff. And so he teaches staff how to confront their colleagues in a way that doesn't cause everybody to go into fight and flight, get into a defensive mode of conversing. And so, yeah, like he's just amazing. And the consequences, team health, just incredible team health. And the more I get into this, more I realize that our fantastic managers, about 80% of their job should be spent on team health. Yeah. Because like they don't need to be doing the physical work of the business. That can be done by the people who were hired to do that work. What they need to be doing is working on team health almost all the time. Yeah. Well, and that's a very difficult transition to make as well from one where when people aren't doing things you can point to generating revenue or growth or some result to one where the impact on results are a little more squishy. 
and and you know putting a premium on leadership management and team health when you're resource constrained and you're growing a bootstrap business is really hard to do and requires a tremendous amount of courage and I commend you for recognizing that at this at this stage of your journey. Keep doing it. You know, we've seen nothing but results by focusing on team health. And, you know, I always think about that where I heard about, you know, like the only difference between Apple and any other company in the world is people. Like, it's not like they have some secret sauce that they found on, you know, that an alien brought them. I know it sounds crazy or whatever, but it's just, it was just a group of heads that got together over here and a group of heads that got together at Dell and at Microsoft and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, that's all you have. Your only long-term sustainable competitive advantage is your people. And that's one of the first things I learned. And it's a simple lesson. I maybe have even picked it up. I wonder if I even picked it up from Get a Grip. I can't remember where I got that line from, but I have never, never let go of that. I said, that is the only thing that keeps us on top. Yeah. End of story is our people. Yeah. Yeah. And specifically team health. And I think that's the thesis of Lencioni's book, The Advantage, is that the only sustainable competitive advantage is your team is healthier, not smarter, but healthier than the competition because they can steal your smarts. They, they can't steal your health. So that's a nice little context for this thing. I'm, I'm, when I'm interviewing a guest with lots of frontline employees creating an impression that's going to make or break your business. I always want to spend a little time on hiring secrets because the labor shortage and the ability to attract and retain great people is is causing a lot of worry in the minds of entrepreneurs right now. What are you doing that's helping you win that war uh, besides what we've already talked about? You know, my answer for people who are looking for inspiration is going to be frustrating because it's like, oh, geez, how do I even start? But it's everything. And once you get it, it's self-perpetuating. And, and what I mean by that is, and it's not everywhere in our organization, but it is in certain, in certain like leadership routes through our organization. It's, there's this natural production of bench strength that's happening internally. And there is nothing more rewarding than knowing that you can hire internally if anybody leaves from middle or upper management and fill those seats with fantastic people. But that comes from so many things. It comes from creating a really healthy work environment where people feel supported and inspired and they're pumped about your vision and your core focus. And they're pumped about you know your, your BHAG and they feel like they're learning a lot in your organization. And the organization is successful and they're seeing the growth and they're seeing it not that that success not erode the quality and the character of the business itself. All those things happen. And I can't say what's the secret sauce. I think it's working diligently to create a business where your staff are your customers and your job is to make sure that you have 100% customer satisfaction guaranteed. And that's what we're working towards. My staff are my customers. It's not my customers that are my customers. My customers are their customers, but I have to focus 100% on my own staff and making sure. And then they want to be part of the company. And we have very little turnover. Even our, even our frontline workers, like our scoopers and stuff like that, like the turnover is, you know, I don't have an exact number, but many, many, if not the vast majority of our scoopers stay for three, four, five years. That's amazing that in, in your amazing. line of work. That's for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm just summarizing when you 
create a culture where one great person wants to work, that great person attracts other great people. That's what you mean by self-perpetuating. Great people attract other great people, average to below average people who are just marking their time card. They attract other people like them as well. And so it's a tough choice, make the right choice and then cater to great people. Run a company that great people want to work at and you will find and retain them, period. And we find that, especially in our sector, the sector that we're hiring, that it is doubly important because I don't really need to hire that many hard skill sets. So it's really hard to hire externally when really what I'm looking for is culture fit. Right. For me, it is doubly important that we are building a roster from within because it's it's just so hard in a couple 30-minute interviews to get a sense of whether someone's going to fit in or not. And in the absence of needing to hire for certain specific hard assets, oh man, that just makes your job like three times harder. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah it's tough enough. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I thought for a minute there, you might say that the real key to finding great people is just telling them for an hour how you're not going to cater to hipsterism, uh, which, <laughs> which for the record, I would be happy to stand in for you and do anytime you don't want to run the interviews anymore. <laughs> it wasn't an interview. It was a lecture. Yeah, it's a rant. A it's a rant masquerading as an interview. I love it. <laughs> you can imagine my surprise when I was told that when I was asked by my EOS implementer how much time I spend speaking in the room. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and then told that All a great leader. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've had a lot of work to do over the over the years. Oh, uh, that's really good. That's really good. All right. Uh, go back to tasting the ice cream for the first time and hatching this plan in your own mind. And, and you're going to re-embark on this journey again. Of all the lessons you've learned over the course of the last 10 years, what's the one piece of advice you'd extract from that time frame and serve it to yourself on a silver platter 10 years ago? What do you wish you had kept top of mind this whole time? That's a really hard question. And I'm stuck at it still. I wish I spent more time celebrating. Hmm. I have no pictures of my original staff. There was no moment. I don't have very many pictures of us in our tiny first office. I know that sounds like nothing, but it's important when you're in the process, you have to take a step back. And it develops a certain appreciation and a certain gratitude that I never allowed myself to feel. And I think that created some bitterness, you know, that I've had to deal with as I'm approaching 10 years in the business where without the moments of celebration, it's even with all the success, it starts to feel like a grind. And, you know, I don't have all these milestones to kind of look back on. And so I think that not only would it be nice to kind of have had some memorabilia in some great memories that I built along the way of celebrating the success of Village, it would be nice to look back on. I think that it would have given me a healthier relationship with my business along the way as Mm. well. Mm. So I don't know. That's a strange answer. It is a unique answer, but I love it for that reason, because it is true of all. One of my clients has struggled with this for years and their code name for celebrating more is more cowbell from the famous Saturday Night Live skit. Yes. And I can't, I mean, I want to say somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 or 80% of my clients put that on their issues list fairly regularly. It is a very common weakness of people who are constantly focused on the gap between where they are today 
and where they want to get tomorrow is they don't celebrate the progress they've made along the way because we're just too busy. There's, there's work to go do. So you're not alone. And I'm really glad you shared it, Billy. Really glad you shared it. That was great stuff. Oh, and one more thing. It's okay if somebody's not working out in your organization. Yeah. It's okay. Let it go. Let yeah. them go. Yeah. It's better for everyone. And you hold on to it because you feel guilty about it or you, you don't want to. Yeah. yeah, I get you. Just let it happen. Yeah, that's good stuff. Thank you. I can I can almost hear Chris Jones talking in the background right now. Yes, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. last thing I want to ask, because I, literally I could keep talking to you for a couple hours and I know our listeners could listen for a lot longer as well. But those who want to go learn more about you or your company, what's the easiest place to find you and the organization? Absolutely. You can call me on my cell at 403-519-5648. Always happy to chat with anybody who feels inspired by anything that was said today, uh, wants to learn a little bit more, wants to share something, some tip that they have for me as I go through my journey. My email is B-F-R-I-L-E-Y at villageicecream.com. And you can find us online at Village Ice Cream on Instagram. You can send a DM. Although I will have to get that forwarded to me. <laughs> uh, and then uh, also you can find us at villageicecream.com on the website. And the website has quite a bit of information about our business and what we're all about. So any one of those four ways, uh, happy to connect. That's very generous of you. I'll put all that detail in the show note and just urge people to dig in and, and get to know you because it's been an absolute pleasure having the conversation. This podcast is all about making us as leaders better every day. You've contributed to me being better. I just want to say thank you one last time, Billy. Appreciate you spending time. Thanks, Peyton. And thanks for letting me be a part of this. I know I am under no obligation to say this, but the EOS program has changed my life and has made running my business infinitely more fun and gratifying and rewarding. It's made me a better person. It's made everyone on my team a better person. So I'm really happy for what you guys are all doing. I'm so thankful that you guys exist. You guys taught us how to run a business. Uh, thank you. That's uh, very rewarding. And, and I know Gino himself will be thrilled to hear that message as well. So thanks a lot. Come for an ice cream. If you got value from today's episode, do me a favor. Open your podcasting app and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. If you've already subscribed, please subscribe one of your friends.